MotoGP is in the middle of its long summer break, but we didn't want to wait until racing resumes in Austria to have a chat about what's been going on this season. So rather than keeping you waiting until the second week in August, we're making an early return to normal service. But it's not quite normal service because, as you've probably noticed, I'm Glenn Freeman, not Toby Moody. I'm filling in for Toby this week, but he'll be back next time to look ahead to the rest of 2021 with Simon Patterson and Val Harunchi, who I'm delighted to say are both with us here today. And the summer break feels like a good time to assess Suzuki's title defence, as that's where we're going to start. After nine races of this season, reigning champion Joan Mir sits fourth in the standings, 55 points behind championship leader Fabio Quattararo, while teammate Alex Rins, who finished third last season, is currently 14th. Suzuki also won the team's championship last year, but so far in 2021, it's fifth in those standings, behind the factory teams from Yamaha, Ducati and KTM, and also the Pramac Ducati team. So Simon, welcome along from what looks like a nice sunny day in your van. Before we get into this in great detail, if you had to sum up Suzuki's year in one sentence, what would it be? I can do it in one word. Underwhelming. Okay, let's move on to Val. Val, do you need more than do you need more than <laughs> one word? Or can you can you match that? Oh, I thought I thought I was gonna be real original by also doing just one word instead of one sentence. I thought Simon wouldn't do it, so now I feel like a, a copycat. My word is beige. I have no feelings on it. I, I, I have I have tried to formulate a feeling on it for the past a while. I don't have anything. Beige. Beige is what you're getting. Well, let's see if we can develop a feeling out of Val over the course of the next 40 minutes or so. We are going to look at this in more depth. We're not going to end the podcast there with a word each from both of you. <laughs> a good place to start is a points comparison. 2020 was unquestionably a weird season for MotoGP. We had a disruption to the calendar because of the pandemic, of course. But we also had the absence of Mark Marquez opening things up for everybody else. Nine races into this season... Mir has 101 points and he's fourth in the standings. After nine races of 2020, he had 105 points and he was second. But most tellingly, this year, of course, he's 55 off the lead, as we mentioned before. Whereas last year, we still had Quattaro out front at this stage, but Mir was only 10 points behind. So Simon, based on those numbers, is this as simple as Suzuki is doing a similar job to what it did last year, but the opposition is stronger? Um, half and half, I think. Uh, part of it is that the opposition is undeniably stronger. Fabio Quattararo has been so much more consistent this year than last year. Um, obviously, there's a few other guys who have surprised us a little bit, maybe with some extra consistency, looking at Johan Zarco in particular. Um, but but really, it's Quattararo that is the man to beat. Like He's the guy with the target on his back right now, right? Um, so that is part of it that has made Suzuki's job more difficult because last year was so incredibly chaotic that they kind of it was almost like dodging the accidents on a motorway to just get through to the finish line um, whereas this year everyone else is not crashing um, literally and figuratively but at the same time the Suzuki performance in itself hasn't been as good as it was last year because we've seen places where last year Mir would have been able to take advantage more of situations than he has this year. You know, he racked up a load of podiums sort of middle of last season simply by being in the right place to capitalize on someone else crashing or someone else, you know, having a mechanical or whatever. Whereas this year, when that happens, he's still sixth. 
He, he's not any closer to actually getting on the podium and getting valuable points. Uh, there's lots of reasons for that. I'm sure we'll explore them through the podcast. Um, but it is something that I think they can turn around. Whether or not it's too late, given how strong Quadraro is, is a different story. Yeah, I, to add to that, basically, I I subscribe to much much the same theory that Suzuki is probably a little weaker than than last year for a variety of reasons. But also, even if it was as strong as last year, the fact that Yamaha has stopped repeatedly emptying two barrels into its own feet is it's a it's a it's a big game changer basically uh i i don't think that even the suzuki of last year's level would have been much of a match of for for quartararo's form in the first in the first half of the season i'm not sure that's like a big disaster or drama or anything i don't think a team with suzuki's resources and with just you know two bikes to work off of you know with an effort that's proven in an effort that's very efficient but still limited in overall resource compared to some of its main competitors i think i think this is just about you know okay there will be years like this you can't dominate year after year in in, in moto G, in modern moto gp unless you're an absolute juggernaut in every in every sense of the word uh as you said glenn mir is four points down on where he was last year suzuki in the manufacturers championship is uh Oh, let me check. I had this written down. Uh, Suzuki is 13 points down on where it was last year. And considering that Alex Rins has spent half of the season in the gravel, that's that's acceptable. That's okay. Uh, but of course, it's, it's hard to, it'll be hard to accept it given the, the high note that 2020 was. But yeah, th- that's why I say beige because it's, it's hard not to be like a bit disappointed, but at the same time, it's kind of okay. I think the main the main reason it's not working out for Mir is because he didn't choose to ride with number one. I uh, I haven't forgiven him yet for that, and uh, I don't forgive any rider or driver in another series. If you've got the opportunity to run number one, you definitely should run it. But I think we have Valentino Rossi and Mark Marquez to blame for that one. But Val, one of the themes of last season would be the Suzuki's not qualifying that well, and then gradually working their way through the field and being there when it counted at the end. Is that one of the things that's holding them back this year, that they're still qualifying badly and for whatever reason they're not coming through in the same way? Yeah, I mean, they're not they're not qualifying well enough. And ultimately, I did at one point ask Joanne exactly that, as, you know, that didn't seem to be a problem last year. Do you really need to prioritize qualifying improvements? To which I was like, yes, absolutely, because I, uh, like, basically, I go into Sundays with a bit of fear, because I know how big a job is at hand. But looking at Mir and looking at maybe even more Alex Rins, they do still seem to make really good ground up in the first laps, and only then when the pace settles in, it seems there's just not quite enough and last year it seems that there usually was enough it's it's hard to say how how much suzuki season would be transformed if uh if the if the qualifying situation was just a little bit improved because it 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 seems like a bike that can overtake but at the same time you know uh rins has put on some spectacular charges but they've repeatedly ended in the gravel so maybe that's you know that's part of the part of the formula if if rins starts higher up maybe he actually you know stays on the bike uh, it's it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, I remember last year we 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 did a story that was something like the age of uh, MotoGP Sunday Men is over, 
which which you know, said something like, you know, you can't just qualify not well and save your best for Sunday. And then a Sunday man won the title. But I think when you have either a Marquez or a Quartararo firing on all cylinders, you can't do that. Like, there are other guys which you can defeat like that, but Marquez and Fabio, if you let them get out front right away because they will qualify well and if you don't if you don't stay in touch with them then you're never making that up however good your race pace is usually at least i think that uh it's interesting what you say about the first half of the race still not being any you know much different from last year i think you're completely right i think we haven't seen a huge step backwards in qualifying performance we haven't seen a huge step back in the opening laps performance but maybe where we have seen a bit of extra weakness this year is in the later stages of the races and if you ask Suzuki, they will pin some of that on the Michelin tire allocation. They've been adamant this year that the, the Michelin allocation just doesn't suit them for the first half of the season. Uh, you know, It's a KTM problem as well. We, we saw them struggle even more with it. Um, that's why Mir was sort of joking at the last race and asking that this is this is the start of the new season now that the second half of the season will be much easier because the allocation suits them much better. They've been telling me that, you know, people inside the team have been making that point since Qatar, that there was just races they were going to have to write off. It will be interesting to see whether or not that changes and it'll be interesting to see whether or not it makes any difference in closing down Quartararo. There is one noticeable change from Suzuki from last year to this year. And that's the move of team boss Davide Brivio to Formula One with Alpine. Simon, we know that Suzuki didn't go for a like-for-like replacement when Brivio left. They've, they've kind of let the people that were already there in the management positions have just taken on those responsibilities. Perhaps the team's being run a bit more by committee. But do you think that Suzuki have suffered at all because of Brivio's departure? I think the team don't suffer weekend to weekend that Davide's not there. There is no impact on how things run on a race weekend um, th that is you know, solely because he's not part of the structure anymore. I think where they're struggling is, uh, to pick up on what Val said earlier actually, resource. I think that the reason that we're going into yet another MotoGP season, and let's be honest, probably another three-year block of MotoGP seasons without a satellite Suzuki team, is because that was Brivio, that that was Davide Brivio's pet project. He was the guy pushing to make that happen. And off the record, some sources inside Valentino Rossi's team have made it adamant that they were waiting to sign the contract with Suzuki, that they wanted those bikes far, far more than they wanted Yamahas or Ducatis. They wanted satellite Suzukis. And then Brivio disappeared and the whole project just, just turned to dust. That will make a difference um not having another two bikes to gather data when there's such a small factory makes an impact um the other area where i think that there's an impact related to that is suzuki are traditionally a really conservative japanese team um more so than even than, than the likes of honda which has the reputation for being quite conservative and what brivio brought was a, a little bit of Italian temperament and uh, just a, just a, a counterbalance to the Japanese forces. And what it meant was whenever they needed, whenever he really believed that they needed something, he fought for it. He fought really, really hard for it. And what it seems now is that without him there in that role with, uh, 
with Japanese management at the top of the pyramid inside the team in the, in the form of uh, Sahara-san, it means that there's not the same impetus to bring new parts, to bring new developments. Um, and, and that is something, you know, the rear uh, ride height adjustment device has been something that the guys have been pleading openly in the media for for months and it still hasn't turned up. And and I don't think that would be the case if David Abrivio was still the team boss. Yeah, but I, I also to to sort of counterpoint that, uh, it might like it might not be a, a downside so much as it might just be the way Suzuki has to be because of the budget it operates on. Like maybe this is also just an acceptable level. Maybe this is fine. Uh, just looking back at the preseason, so much of the preseason they've spent what working on the 2022 engine which suggests that they didn't have a ton for 2021. That was always going to be a gamble. Like, not really, not focus. like, already looking forward to 22. That's that's something that you find yourself doing when maybe you have to make some, some resource decisions. And if Yamaha was going to get itself sorted out, then that was always going to be a problem for the rest, including Suzuki. And Yamaha has gotten it sort of itself sorted out, more or less, so... I mean, we'll see, like, if in 22 they rock up with an engine that's amazing and they, they start getting podium after podium after podium again, then this sort of 21 mini slump will be a unnecessary evil. But e- equally, as you say, you know, because of all that sort of resource shortage, clearly they're, they're still operating as a high-quality, fairly high-budget MotoGP team. But you can see why why Brivio got tempted by, by Formula One, can't you? Like you, you can see why he was interested in the new project after having maybe achieved as much as he thought was possible here. That that's actually that's an interesting context to put it in. Yeah, when you think about it that way, maybe Brivio. Obviously, he knows more than anyone else in Europe what the budgets are like for that team. And yeah, maybe he knew that it was this was the crowning moment. This was the top of the mountain. That does make a lot of sense. And it, Simon, you've already raised the uh, rear ride height. Uh, device that the team doesn't have we were going to talk about the bike from a technical standpoint later but as we've already talked about the engine and you've mentioned that let's just do it now are there are there any other areas where the bike is lacking on a technical front and what we know it what we definitely know it is missing how much of a a loss is that this year against the bikes that do have the ability to change that so it, it seems like the Suzuki doesn't really miss anywhere, which was kind of its its greatest strength last year. It was the great neutral bike that was good at everything. Um, maybe not fantastic at anything, but good at everything. And as a result, they, they didn't really suffer, you know, tracks like the Red Bull Ring with the Yamaha is, is a write-off um, because they still had enough straight line speed. But then you go to other places where you need to be fast and flowing and they've still got that traditional Suzuki chassis. So there's not really a weakness, which actually makes it quite hard to improve. Um, it, it becomes the whole, you know, the, the cycling talk about marginal gains. It's it's finding little bits here and there. The one area, though, where it does seem like that they believe there's big room to be made up is with the, the rear ride height adjustment device, with being able to use that system to lock the rear of the bike on corner exit, not just off the start, but out of every fast corner. Um, I asked Alex, Alex Rins about it. He says they calculate it, they measure it versus the other bikes. And at most circuits, it's somewhere around 0.3, 0.4 of a second, which is a colossal amount given how close MotoGP is at the minute. 
Like that, that, and that to me is why it is such an important thing that they need to arrive to Austria with. Because if you know that there's one missing component that's giving that much of a gap, you have to, you know, every engineer in the factory should be working to fix it. Yeah, three, three or four tenths sounds like a a bit of a stretch. It is. That's, yeah. that's astronomical in modern MotoGP. That is, yeah. But maybe, yeah, maybe it's true. Yeah, I mean, that, those sort of margins in any form of modern motorsport yeah. are unheard of. But even if it's yeah, half absolutely. that, it's very rare that one change can give you that much time. So well, Half of it half of it at the minute can be three rows in the grid. That's how close our qualifying is. And, and maybe that explains a lot of the qualifying performances. Yeah, that would be fascinating to see if, if they can get it on the bike, see the difference it makes. So we've already compared Mir's points at this stage of the season to last year. <laughs> let's do the same with Alex Rins oh, oh no uh, yeah I almost don't want to um, he's had a messy year so far yeah. and as well as only being 14th in the points he's only got 33 points interestingly last year at this stage he was only 12th in the standings but he had almost double the points with 60 and he then scored 79 over the remaining five races of the year to vault up the order to third Simon, I don't think I'm giving away any trade secrets here to suggest that you found Rins' 2021 season incredibly frustrating. There have been too many crashes, a, a, an injury that I think we can put down to pure carelessness. Yeah, stupidity. Has Alex been, has he been unlucky or the master of his own downfall this year? Um, so part of me thinks it's un, it, it's bad luck. Let's take let's take the ridiculous Barcelona cycling accident out of it where he should just not have been texting while riding his bicycle and should have seen the large white van parked in front of him on the empty circuit um like that that was just the stupidest thing he did all year um but whenever you look at the others it's it's kind of it's unfortunate that it came three races in a row but it's also kind of textbook rins in that so i i genuinely believe he's the fastest suzuki rider despite not being the one that won the championship last year. He is quicker than Mir. He, he, you know, I think we've seen that all the way through and he would have won the championship last year if he had got rid of this habit of getting to the front of races and then falling off. Um, but part of me wonders if that is because he's overriding the bike and maybe the difference between him and Mir is that he is just less able to properly gauge the limit. Um, of, of knowing how far to push. It is something that he can fix. And and to go back to an earlier conversation, maybe that's one of the areas where they're missing Davide Brivio because the guy was an excellent psychologist to riders. And, and maybe maybe that's what's, you know, the biggest impact is that there was those three crashes in a row from, from Mir, or from Rin, sorry. He hopefully has gone away over the summer break. He's had a chance to get his head straight again to to sort of draw a line under what has happened and to come back in and I don't know let's see let's see if he can try and dial it back just five percent and if he can then he can have a, a good second half of the season the one thing I will say at this point because it's like the most one of the most often asked questions on social media at the minute Suzuki are not going to replace him at the end of this season. It's just not going to happen. Factory teams don't sack factory riders halfway through a season for falling off. You know, at the end of the day, they're paid to push really hard. And 
you know, no one was calling for Valentino Rossi to be sacked last year whenever he had, what, six races in a row where he failed to finish. It's just not going to happen. I needed to say that, sorry. <laughs> and considering how, how much credit Alex Rins has been getting for actually getting the JSXRR to where it is right now, it, it yeah. shouldn't happen. He's He's got enough in the bank. Well, it, but... I should say I, it's worth noting yeah. that Alex Rins was basically the rookie that developed that bike. Whenever his uh, factory mm -hmm. teammate, who was signed as the superstar, picked the wrong engine and sabotaged an entire season for them in 2017. Thanks, Andrea Iannone. Yeah, uh, I should say I I agree that Rins is quicker than Miro over one lap. I think if if we look back at their lower category records, I think that becomes extremely obvious. On Sunday, yeah. Mir's you'd still probably have Miro over Rins just because he's such a, a calculated weapon. Uh, but it, it's also, you know, it's also worth mentioning that the same Alex Rins who crashed in, was it four consecutive races before the Barcelona injury? This is still the same guy who announced his MotoGP arrival with a streak of once, once he got over the initial injuries and learning process, I think he had a streak of like more than 10 consecutive top five finishes. The guy can do, do a job on Sunday. Uh, I think, honestly, I don't want to play armchair psychologist, but I'm going to because you know we gotta we gotta fill the runtime somehow, and it's genuinely <laughs> something I partly believe. Um, there's probably a, a deep frustration that the early injury in 2020 cost him what probably otherwise will have been the the championship, and maybe he's sees this as another big chance, the kind of chance that might not come about too too often and then the first mistake came and he started trying too hard to make up for it make up lost ground and it snowballed from there because uh, that's just that's just how it looked there the crashes have looked avoidable but they've also come when he was running up front which suzuki is always keen to stress uh i think he's still gonna he's already come good for them i think he's still gonna be a a, a big asset for them this season's uh a write-off, but if, I mean, it's probably, I'm not sure it's not a write-off for Mir in a certain sense, so it's it's fine. It's, you know, if in 2022 he gets back to that same Alex Rins who was reeling off top five finishes, then he's fine. It's, the, the first person in motorsport you have to beat is your teammate, and it's not easy being the world champion's teammate. There is a psychological strain that comes with that, plain and simple. And it, it's, it is understandable if, yeah, he's feeling under more pressure at the minute. So I think it's good that we've covered the fact that he's not going to get sacked immediately or at the end of the year. But Val, if we're looking at Suzuki's lineup slightly longer term, so over the next maybe couple of years, can you see that if they don't get back to being a championship winning force, might we see some change, either because the team side wants to make a change or at least one of the riders decides they want to go elsewhere? I mean, if, you know, if Yamaha is as strong next year as it was this year, and even if Suzuki makes a step but ends up just a little bit back, I think winning the world title will have changed Mir's outlook on things a little bit. Uh, checking it off this early and this unexpectedly will probably elevate his own view of his self-worth you know he's happy at suzuki he gels well with suzuki but at a certain point i wouldn't be surprised if uh if he starts looking elsewhere 
So, yeah, I think I think there's a pretty good chance. I mean, if Rins doesn't climb out of his current spiral, then they clearly need to find a solution there. But also, I would not be surprised if Mir got poached. And the good news there is I think there will be a lot of people who are quite keen to ride the GSXRR. It's way, way early to, 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 to bring this up. But honestly, uh, in if it doesn't gel with Aprilia, Maverick Vinales could be really good on this bike. Obviously, he was already really good on a Suzuki a few years ago, but if if they need somebody who'll deliver that little bit of explosive one-lap pace and somebody who can't overtake on the Yamaha but will do better in that regard with a bike that's sort of better suited for it, I think Maverick would be a, a, a pretty decent pretty decent fit. But it's, you know, it's way, way too early for any of that. Whenever the Vinales Aprilia deal is eventually announced, um, I'd be stunned if it's not a one-year contract. Because okay. I think what we will potentially see is the, the world's slowest motion game of musical chairs, where he could end up back at, at Suzuki and Mir could end up at Yamaha. Yamaha obviously have Fabio Quattararo, but they've also shown in the past that they love having two riders who who are equally as fast. You know, they the Rossi Lorenzo years were the best years for Yamaha whenever those two guys were trading each other's titles. Um, they, they would quite happily do that again. They're not paying either of their current riders the sort of huge, huge, huge money that you're paying a Mark Marquez or a Jorge Lorenzo. So I, th I think they can definitely afford to poach Mir. Um, and, and I see Rins as being the guy that kind of stays a bit longer at Suzuki that becomes the kind of the the longer term uh the longer term staff member there. Let's catch up on a bit more news from the world of MotoGP then and a great place to start is the racing comeback of none other than Danny Pedrosa. He's going to race a MotoGP bike for the first time since leaving Honda at the end of 2018 making a wild card appearance for KTM in the Styrian Grand Prix. So Val, Pedrosa's been testing the KTM a fair bit, and he's been credited with plenty of the development work that has turned KTM into a race winner in MotoGP. So why are we now finally seeing him race a bike other than a Honda for the first time? So assuming he does a, a Thursday press conference at the Styrian GP, you'll probably get a better answer there. Although with Pedrosa, I don't think you can ever take that for granted because it's not his favorite part of the job. Probably part of the reason why he retired in the first place. But anyway, there goes there goes the understatement yeah. of the day. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I my theory is somewhere between and uh, somewhere between KTM has badgered him for so long that he finally just gave up and said yes, fine, whatever. And the other the other suggestion is it just you know it just got a bit boring in lockdown, etc. And he decided why the hell not. Uh, there's also of course you know the fact that this is the 2022. RC16, which, you know, this is being done to develop that bike. So that bike is supposed to be the first properly, principally Pedrosa-developed KTM. And that's probably part of the incentive for him to try it out in racing trim. And the Red Bull ring is obviously a pretty, pretty good circuit for the KTM. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a surprise, but, yeah, I think probably just, you know, they wore him down with time, I suspect. I, I am surprised to see it. I didn't think we would because he's been so adamant all along about how this is not uh, not something he wants to do, which 
makes me think more than anything else. I, I do believe that it is uh, your third point, Val, that this is entirely as part of the development of the new bike, that he has reached a point where he believes that the only way to continue the development is to do it in a race weekend. And whenever testing is so limited at the minute, you know, the guys get 120 sets of tires each uh, for their test riders to use for the entire season. Why wouldn't you take the opportunity to get around that by having a full race weekend's worth? <clears throat> um, but I, I think that this is what we're seeing. The reason we're seeing him back is Pedroza's pride in his work. I think that he knows he's built a really good bike and he wants to make it as good as he can for next season. And that's why he's coming back. That is the sole reason. Um, obviously, it's a huge thing for KTM. I'm sure he's getting well paid for it. It's something to do at the weekend. Um, but the the majority of the reasoning for it, I see, is is simply being to see how good a job he's done. Probably also an opportunity to rub it in a bit for Honda, I suspect. I mean, not sure if that's given the traditional yeah. Honda KTM rivalry. Yeah, um, I'm sure that there's no one at KTM really upset about what way Honda will take it. <laughs> like they hate each other. But you you mentioned mileage there, Simon. I'll just pick up on that because obviously. KTM doesn't have concessions anymore. So is this actually a way to to get around that as well, to get Pedrosa the mileage that he would be able to get before because they could do more running with a test rider? Now, actually, it's, it's another way to create an extra test for him because they've had something that's been taken away because of their success. Absolutely. They, they've found not really a loophole in the rules because it's always been there and other manufacturers have always done wild cards to test. In fact, KTM have always done wild cards to test as well with Mika Calio. Calio. But um, no. but I, I think, yeah, they are just coping with losing the concessions in the best possible way and that, that involves throwing Pedroza into a race. And by the sounds of things, this won't be the only one this year. I think we'll see him again, maybe at Misano, uh, making another appearance, which makes sense because... If you're a MotoGP test rider and you want more testing, there's a reason that Mizano is one of the most used test circuits in the calendar. You know, it, it's where everyone goes to test. So if you can't test there, race there. And Why not? I, you know, it doesn't cost. And I know the, the expectations aren't super high in terms of results, but actually mentioning Calio does make me remember he was actually really handy in those wild cards. Like he had some serious pace compared to the, to yeah. the factory bikes. So who knows if the if the 2022 upgrades are like a real, real, a lot, then we might see something surprising in the timesheets at some point. Calio's wildcards were always the perfect example of how good KTM's development was because he turned up for one race and was like head and shoulders above the factory riders. I think he beat both of them at the Red Bull ring one year. Um, I think so, yeah. I, and that, you know, that, that always showed us where next year's bike was. The noises that I've heard is that next year's bike is very, very good. So, you know, maybe we're going to see something. I don't think there should be any expectation to see anything special from Pedroza, especially given the fact that Oliveira in particular is at such a high level at the minute. I don't think he's going to be fighting Oliveira for the win in the last corner. But I think it'll be a good chance to get a bit of a, an indicator um, to the extent that I really wish that Suzuki would send Sylvan Gantoli along for a race or two so that we can see if the 22 Suzuki is as good as we've been told it is as well because the talk out of that camp is even better I think you've just created a new rule there everyone's got to turn up with their 2022 bikes with a test rider on them and they can race in their own class even if they're off the back but more, more wild cards <laughs> more wild cards is always good with me I'm still annoyed that we didn't get to see Lorenzo uh, do his planned wild card for Yamaha 
last year. Agreed. But looking, just last last thing on Pedrosa, do either of you feel that he is a loss to the MotoGP grid since he's been missing? He spent so long at Honda, he never quite got it over the line to turn it into a championship push. Is it, should he still be racing full-time or is the role that he's in now right for him at this stage in his career? I like we all wanted to to know how Pedroza would go on a Yamaha. I think everybody wanted to know that. But if Pedroza gets on that Petronas Yamaha in twenty nineteen, then we don't get Fabio. And Fabio Fabio being not promoted would be a bigger loss than Danny continuing because I think Danny's career had reached its natural full time endpoint. I, I agree. Um, everyone wanted to see Pedroza win a championship. Pedroza was given every opportunity to win a championship and never quite managed to do it. And from a kind of a media perspective or, you know, a, a, a in the paddock perspective, Val hinted on it earlier, Danny Pedroza's single word answers in press conferences were a regular thing. He wasn't someone, he wasn't a Danilo Petrucci who brought so much life to the paddock off the bike um, that, yeah, I think I would much rather have a Fabio Quattararo who's pictures this week were being shared by Dolce and Gabbana on Twitter. You know, like that for the sport is much better than um, Danny Pedrosa saying, no, whenever you ask him if the bike's any better today. That said, would MotoGP be better off if in 2017 Yamaha got Pedrosa instead of Vinales and Vinales stayed on Suzuki? That's, I think, a different question. I wonder, that would be at least very interesting to watch in some parallel universe. That's a podcast in um, itself, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not the question I asked. <laughs> but let, let's move on because there's, there's another racing comeback on the cards because Franco Morbidelli had surgery last month on a long-standing knee injury. Uh, Simon, what's the latest on when, firstly, when, we, when can we expect Franco to come back? Because let's face it, it was ACL surgery, I think, wasn't it? And anyone who follows sports like football and rugby and that sort of thing knows that's not an easy injury to come back uh, from. So what's the latest on Franco and who are we going to see riding his bike in the meantime? So Franco, it's kind of, as always with these things, it's a bit vague and how long the recuperation is exactly going to be. Uh, team boss Raslan Rosali put out a, a, an interview through the team last week where he kind of hinted that it would be at least four races. Um, for me, if it's four races, it's five because the fourth race and the fifth race still to come are back to back. Um, and the only difference is that race number five is at Mizano, which is the home race for Morbidelli and the home race for an awful lot of Patrona's sponsors. So uh, I think realistically, we won't see him back until early October until the championship heads abroad. Um, I don't, you know, if he's not fit enough to ride at Aragon at the start of September, I don't think he's going to be fit enough to ride at Mizano a week later. Uh, the good news is that I like, like you say, I've said with one hundred percent certainty, Cal Crutchlow is going to be on the bike for at least three races. Um, he's going to Austria. He's going to Silverstone, which is a huge thing, especially with with full grandstands again. And I genuinely can't wait to see Cal Crutchlow back in a Yamaha. I'm actually more excited about it than I was about the chance to see Lorenzo back in a Yamaha. Because Cal has this amazing ability that no other MotoGP rider I've ever worked with has, where we would go an entire summer break, an entire winter break, sorry, so maybe nine weeks, and Cal would do nothing but cycle. 
you'd see every other rider in MotoGP riding flat track, riding motocross, riding superbikes on track. Cal would ride his push bike. He'd turn up to the first test and he'd just be as quick as the rest of them. He doesn't need any lead time to get back to race speed. Um, the, the only issue is that the first two races are Austria, a track that the Yamaha really doesn't like. But, I, you know, with two races where he's under no pressure whatsoever and then heading to Silverstone, his home race, a circuit he loves, and a track where the bike goes really well, we could actually see Crutchlow fireworks. It's, it's, it's exciting. Val, where's, where's your level of expectation for Crutchlow? Do you think... Are we asking too much, even even with what Simon said there, are we asking too much to expect him to be anywhere near the sharp end if it's a short run of races? I mean, Austria, definitely, because, you know, the, the, the 2019 Yamaha is not going to love those straights at all, given how much Morbidelli struggled with the straight line speed all season. Uh, honestly, I don't know. I think... I don't really expect anything. It'll just it'll be nice to get whatever answer we get out of out of Cal, uh, out of his his current performance level. It's it's an okay package. It's n- clearly not bad. It's capable of of really clicking at some points, and I suspect probably some part of at least some part of Frankie's downward slope of results is because uh, the motivation has been probably harder to come by given that the package is outdated so we we might see something pretty fun don't think he'll he'll win races don't don't expect him on the podium but you know i think he'll he'll show us all good time and he'll say nice and controversial things afterwards which is the car crutch low we know and love to hit yeah they can put him next to pedrosa in the uh in the press conference and he can do all the talking for both of them just say cow well, how do you think danny's gonna get on and uh, we'll get a better answer that way <laughs> Simon, Val's, Val's hinted there that Morbidelli wasn't having a great season even before he stepped back for surgery. And that kind of fits with the theme of this, of this episode because he was the man who finished between the two Suzuki riders in the championship last season on that 2019 bike. So what was going wrong for him already this season? Is Val right to look at sort of motivation and the frustration of still being on old kit or even in a time of limited development has is that bike now just too old from everything that i've sort of learned or tried to learn or listened to from within the whole yamaha structure a lot of people within the team don't think that bike is terrible even still um the you know arguably the 2019 yamaha was stronger than the 2020 yamaha with all sorts of problems there and the 2021 Yamaha is obviously better, but it's still the same engine. It's still not a massive step forward. But I, I think Val is completely right. I think the Morbidelli problem is just that the guy is so frustrated. He's just run down by constantly constantly being belittled by Yamaha, essentially, that it's not really a surprise that he's not performing at his finest. Also, we know now, you know, that things have come out a little bit. This injury is something he's been carrying for a while. It's something that he's made worse a few times through this season and then has affected subsequent races leading up to needing the surgery. Um, I'm curious what's going to happen if he comes back. He's been promised an upgrade potentially to the factory team for next season to replace Vinales. He's feeling confident and fit again. It will be a good measure of where the 
actual cause of the problem is. If he gets back to 2020 pace at the tail end of this season, it kind of proves Val's point, really. Yeah, I still, to, to, to add to what Simon said, I I am fully a believer that the 19 bike was better than the 20 bike, and I'm a, I am I do believe that if Fabio had the 19 bike, he would be champion in, in 2020. But that's not to massively denigrate Franco Morbidelli, who is a really good MotoGP rider and who clearly did make something of a step last year and who has not done a bad job this year. He's also had some misfortunes in, in races that really shouldn't have happened, whether due to other riders or due to some, some technical stuff. But I I don't think he's the Yamaha standard bearer. So when you, you pair that with, you know, not quite its best rider and not quite the best equipment it has to offer, I think this is normal. So, yeah, but I, I hope that a renewed sense of motivation and a, a factory ride that I think he deserves for, for 2022, I hope that elevates him in the second half. Of the okay, well, I think we'll leave it there. I think we've successfully knocked the rust off in time for Toby's return next week. So thanks, Simon and Val, for coming along. Simon and Val will be back with Toby in the hot seat next week to look ahead to the rest of the season and what to expect from the remainder of MotoGP in 2021, which gets back underway on the 8th of August with the Styrian Grand Prix at the Red Bull Ring.